This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. From Hollywood, California, the horror capital of the world, the Boulay Brothers, Creatures of the Night. with everything it was Shrek Morda all along who's been pulling every evil string it was Shrek Morda all along and I robbed Victoria too twice (laughs) (laughs) oh it's so good it's so good welcome everyone welcome to another terrifying episode of the Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night. I keep seeing all these memes for WandaVision and everyone's like, you know, this and then she does this, Agatha does that or whatever. And all I can think of is being on the set of the Boulay Brothers Dragula and feeling like that with the competitors every time we talk with them. That's like, and I'm not just the host, I'm the executive producer too. (laughs) I know it's, it's going through all their minds are like, God, where do they come up with all of this twisted shit? And the answer is we come up with it constantly. We have running <laughs> lists on our phone that last for years. We will never run out of ways to torture contestants on Dragula ever. Hey, we're just training them for the real world. It's true. And for those of you that don't recognize the reference, that is from WandaVision's newest episode. It's kind of like horror adjacent content. I think a lot of horror lovers would love what's happening in the comic book world and the way that Disney Plus has kind of created this amazing kind of unique format in WandaVision. I think so too. And I'm really curious to see where they go with the story because it's dark. It's not a family friendly story, even though so far they've made it. Disney friendly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, in the comic book, the Scarlet Witch kills Agatha Harkness and leaves her there to rot for a couple of years. But, you know, I don't think they'll quite go there. (laughs) Hey, you never know. The season is still young. It's not over yet. Her being a villain is interesting because she was not a villain in the comic book. Well, that's what it looks like now. But yeah, I I think that there's no way they can pull out from that. But it does look like, you know, she's going to be portrayed as like a bonafide bad guy, which I wonder if they would consider her in kind of a weird way, a Disney villain now. Ooh. Kind of interesting. interesting. Yeah. 
Well, I think the actress is doing a great job so far. And it's incredible. I like the series. I love it. I want to make mention of another sort of horror adjacent brand that I keep getting inundated with. I just saw the newest trailer release for Godzilla vs. Kong and I cannot watch it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to know anything about it because I want to watch the movie like so badly. I am doubtful about how it's going to turn out. Drac pessimistic? Surprise! Well, let's be honest. The last couple of Godzilla movies <laughs> have not been great. They haven't. I like Queen Kong. I love Dragzilla. But I think if it was Godzilla versus Kong, I would pick Team Godzilla. Yeah. I mean, I don't see how... I mean, first of all, all Godzilla has to do is catch... Queen Kong's hairy body on fire and then she'll win, right? I mean, she's fur. It's like she's going to catch up in flame and I die. I guess maybe. I don't know. She seems pretty resilient. I don't know. I guess. That's a constitution of at least like 23. Oh, my God. For sure. She just might make that saving throw. Damn. <laughs> you know, a saving throw that I'm not going to make is at the end of last episode, I said we might be able to talk about something very exciting this mm-hmm. episode and we cannot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And somehow I knew that. Well, what I'll say is the excitement that I am going to say Shut we up. will be able to say by next episode <laughs> is really fucking exciting, right? Have you ever heard of the term the queen who cried wolf? No, and well, that's not me. Let me introduce you to her. Listen. <laughs> I know. You, you have do the best. Know. In, I you do can't know. even I, try to blame this one on me. Oh, it's not blame, but I would just <laughs> never put it out there. I think it was premature. But now. We're so close. I know. We're so close. I'm sure by the next episode, everyone will know exactly what we're talking about. And speaking of secrets, I think it's time we invite our co host and our very own little secret weapon, Ian, to the podcast. Ian, welcome to the show. Ooh, don't tell anyone. I'm here on a secret. Oh, my God. <laughs> a dirty secret. Oh, it's always dirty with me. <laughs> oh, I know it is. How are you guys? We're good. Pretty good. I've been battling my inner demons and winning all day, so I'm feeling pretty good today, yeah. Yes. Drac, what about you? I'm doing great, as you know, since we've been together all day. We had a very productive day today, and I'm excited about what we did earlier. Same. All this talk of secrets and announcements, I'm literally chomping at the bed. I'm like, oh, God, if listeners only knew what Mm. we did today. Mm -hmm. I got to remind people, you know, I have to pat us on the back because I don't think people understand how weird our show and our content is for the Mm -hmm. rest of the world, you know, and how hard it is to get it across the finish line. I don't think people understand. They're like, why don't you put out 500 seasons? Why don't you do Dragula Europe? Why don't you do Dragula Africa? I'm like, bitch, it's hard enough just to do the U.S. version. (laughs) No, it's true. And I think we're totally desensitized, right? Like we've been sort of fighting this fight and really just striving to keep our face out there and pushing our misfits and monsters and all the things that we love. And sometimes every now and then I get to sidestep and just see what we look like through other people's eyes. And she's weird. Oh, she is strange mama. And the thing is the show is incredibly successful. As we all know, even the spinoff that we did recently with AMC was like huge, but it's still weird. Even though tons of people are watching it, like to, to go to executives and show them this content. I don't think people understand how straight laced, you know, the TV industry is. Yeah, no, no, not at all. Even like the super fans, like we meet people on tour who, you know, they say kind of the same things like, oh my God, I love the show. Why don't more people know about it? And I'm like, if you just took two steps back, you'd be like, oh, monster, drag, horror. They're blowing this one up. She's getting melted in a thing of acid. Oh, but also drag. It's like, it's so much and it's amazing content, but yeah. it's crazy. I mean, the thing is, it it is 
getting bigger and more people are learning about it and I'm happy about it. But yeah, it's a lot to get each season made. I think. Of course. No, it is a lot. But for some people that love a certain sector of things in the world, like dragon spooky stuff and like horror movies, they're looking for the one thing that kind of hits the sweet spot. And it was Dracula oh all along. Yes. <laughs> you, know, you know, another thing I don't think people realize is because our show is a reality show, but it's also scripted, it takes a lot longer to make. I don't think people see that at all. No, they don't understand. Like even whether it's the death scenes or our theatrical intros or re-recording a new introduction to the show, all those things take so long to do. And yeah. mm-hmm. I mean, we spent all, I think all of 2019 working on season three. It was basically from January literally till October. October, right? It's a reality competition show. It's shot on location. It's shot in a studio. It's basically like 10 to 15, sometimes up to 20, like short films. It's like Mm -hmm. mini movies. I mean, it's all of those things. And it's like housing 10 contestants or 12 or more. It's like five shows together. It's daunting. The easy, you know, it would be easy if it was like go in a studio, record 10 episodes and just stay in there and do it one right after the other. That would be easy to do. But we'd like to reach a little higher than that. (laughs) (laughs) Dragula is definitely the god that we worship. And she is a vengeful god for Mm -hmm. sure. She enjoys the pain. Speaking of pain, uh, what kind of news updates do you have for us this week? Well, I have one little mini update before I actually get into the current events. Mm-hmm. Uh, last week, Drakmorda, you gave me an assignment, which was to... <laughs> I'm so proud of you. You know why? Because I've made a note here. I've made a note and I've just been waiting to spring Ooh. it on you, whether or not you were able to complete your assignment. But I should have known. The you little one who did known. all her workbooks mm-hmm. every summer through elementary school. <laughs> There's a reason that he is sitting here at this table. Don't forget. Listen, I like to think of myself as the, you know, Pfizer efficacy, you know, 94, 95%. None of that Johnson & Johnson 65 failing great, honey. <laughs> so what do you have to report? So the house from Halloween 5, uh, which I reported on last episode, was originally listed at $950,000. I tried to do some digging and... Maybe it was the powers of Creatures of the Night, or maybe, you know, it got sold. The listing has been taken down. Mm. Mm. Um, estimates around there in the area say $1 million was the final sale price of the house. Mm. And where was it again? Salt Lake City, Utah. I don't know how much pr- houses go for there, but I think it's overpriced. I mean, if Chalet Shaw is any indicator, maybe it's not. <laughs> Well, in comparison, I also did a little research for the HGTV or real estate lovers. The Buffalo Bill House that I reported on last episode sold for $300,000, which was $50,000 over the asking price. I mean, it still doesn't have the basement in it, so what's the point? That queen from New York got a steal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Someone wrote in about us talking about that and said, do better. They thought it was offensive that we... Wait. Yes, they thought it was offensive that we talked about that movie at all. <gasps> girl. Uh-uh. Someone, someone out here better get their girl and get them away <laughs> from our podcast. Because if you're shook that easily, you are listening to the wrong program. <laughs> well, hello, Clarice. I love that movie. Like, I'm sorry. I read the book. I love the movie. It great. Sorry. Anyway, moving on. So as Creatures of the Night listeners know, every episode, I try to bring the best and bloodiest of Hollywood horror news to the show. But for the uninitiated, my love of all things horrifying, gruesome, and terrible goes beyond what we see in movies and TV, extending its tendrils into what some people might consider to be the study of creatures and monsters in the real world. So it brings me great joy to start tonight's current events off with the return of Cryptids of the Night, Cryptozoology Updates. 
Last December, geologists with the British Antarctic Survey began drilling through the half-mile-deep Filchner-Rhone ice shelf in order to study the history of the seafloor below. After three months of drilling into the icy, unknown depths, the scientists were finally able to break through the ice and explore the murky depths, where in addition to the muck of the seafloor, they found something unexpected. When reviewing the camera footage from the expedition, the scientists were able to see a huge number of small creatures living attached to a rock just below this half mile of ice. Living in the pitch black water, several previously undiscovered worm-like creatures, predatory jellyfish, and sea sponges were seen writhing and reacting to the light of the camera. Until further research can be done and samples can be taken, it's unknown if these newly discovered sea-dwelling organisms are filter-feeding or if they're part of a larger chain of carnivorous sea creatures with prey to sustain them and predators to hunt them. Whatever the case may be, I've seen enough subterranean creature horror to know that this is just the beginning of what lies beneath. Your description of those creatures sounds like uh, all the promoters that we used to work with in Los Angeles, especially in downtown LA. <laughs> mm, the, the carnivorous bottom feeders, exactly. <laughs> oh, For a minute, yeah. I thought you were talking about um, Abora's origin story. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for a minute, I also thought I was talking about all the inhabitants at Queen Kong. I was like, ooh, yes, sea sponges and carnivorous <laughs> jellyfish. Ooh. <laughs> On the release of the last episode of Creatures of the Night, Jordan Peele's genre-redefining horror movie, Get Out, celebrated its third anniversary. When I saw this on the calendar, I thought it'd be a great segue to discuss a few notable news stories about Black creatives and horror that I found this week, with new projects being announced featuring Black writers, directors, and producers all at the helm. With the success of HBO's Lovecraft Country, it seems like Netflix wants to get in on the growing popularity of the cosmic horror genre. Netflix has announced that Spike Lee will be producing a new Cthulhu-centric horror movie with a streaming service titled Gordon Hemingway and the Realm of Cthulhu. The film will follow a black American adventure hero who teams up with an Ethiopian warrior princess to rescue her regent from mysterious evil forces from beyond our reality. Variety magazine added to this announcement, reporting that Jonathan Majors, who starred in Lovecraft Country as Atticus Freeman, will play the title role of Gordon Hemingway, making this Majors' second project in the, thankfully, newly diverse cosmic horror space. And speaking of horror in a broader sense than just the cosmic side of things, AMC and Shudder have just announced an upcoming horror anthology series featuring the work of Black directors and screenwriters. The anthology will feature projects from new and emerging talent, as well as established Black creatives showcased in Shudder's Black horror history documentary, Horror Noir. While the anthology does not have an official title or release date yet, AMC and Shudder have stated that the anthology is scheduled to follow the format of Creepshow's tiered release, debuting later this year on Shudder before re-releasing on AMC after the initial release window. I am really excited about this. I knew that this project was in the works, and I think it's a great idea. I mean, anything that's going to be derivative or even related to that horror noir is something I look forward to because that was genius. I think it was so well produced and educational. Like I kind of felt like I was seeing familiar stuff, but through a kaleidoscope that I didn't even know existed. I think Shudder's doing so much in the realm of diversity as far as horror, like more so than any other company I could think of in the past 20 years. Yeah, right out in front. Mm -hmm. And especially just putting a purely black horror anthology out. I mean, it'll have tons of new people working, you know, tons of old people too. It's just, I don't know. I think this is an amazing thing. What about middle-aged people? Ooh, no, 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 no. Just old and young. Mm -hmm. Cool. Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> Like I mentioned on this season's premiere episode, if last year was all about delays, this year is all about freshly bloodied horror content. With that in mind, we are definitely seeing a trend of reboots, remakes, and sequels to existing projects pushing their way through to the surface. I found a few interesting announcements this week, as well as one gory update about a previously mentioned project, so let's cut right to it. Neil Blomkamp recently announced on Twitter that a sequel is finally in the works for his 2009 sci-fi horror masterpiece, District 9. 
While details are sparse about the sequel, titled District 10, Blumkamp did reveal that District 9's lead actor, Charlotte Copley, would be returning to the film and that his co-writer, Terry Thatchell, was also actively working on the screenplay and to expect updates very soon. I love sci-fi. I love sci-fi horror and I love District 9. I went back and rewatched like during the pandemic. So uh, very recently, and my only memory of it was like, God, I loved that movie, but I saw it so long ago. Like I couldn't articulate why. And then I rewatched it. I'm like, oh God, it's just as good you know, years later with a rewatch. And now I'm super excited about District 10. I actually thought of you specifically when I saw this. I was like, oh my God, I knew that you were such a huge fan of District 9. And it's been so long since I've seen it. Like I saw it in theaters, actually at an Alamo draft house. And I made a really poor choice of what I was eating. And it was like some sort of blue cheese burger thing. And all just like the creature gore and stuff. I was like, this is unappealing <laughs> on several levels. Do you know, sometimes Alamo designs their menu to match whatever that movie is. Yeah. I think that was part of it. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Like black and alien wings or yeah, something. One time we saw, I forget what it was, some horror movie and there was like gummy worms and stuff. It was yeah. cute. I like that. <laughs> I miss Alamo Draft House. I miss the movies. I miss real life. I miss Speaking the of, here's my uh, news update is that they are supposed to be opening theaters in New York soon at 20%. Really? Yeah, but the problem is they had some theater owners on and they're like, we don't have any movies. Like, they're like, I don't know. We don't have any movies because no one's, which I called. I said this was going to happen because there's this big period where people weren't making content because of, you know, production being shut down. So now there's going to be this big gap, which I think is interesting because what they might do is get creative and kind of, rescreen older movies and bring the stars in and things like that, which I think is a great idea. Oh my God, really throwing it back to when they had stars at screenings. I mean, it kind of reminds me of In Feud when they showed Joan Crawford at the premiere of the film. I don't know. I feel like that would really make the experience really pop, like turn to a live event. I want to do that, but at 20%, I can't really see it being worth it to pay someone from the movie <laughs> to appear. I thought you were going to say at 20%, I couldn't see a way that it would be able to cover my fee to uh, that too. <laughs> <laughs> but I would love to do that. That would be fun to do something at like the the Hollywood the yeah, dome or something. That's you know? like Hollywood legend behavior. You know, stuff Absolutely. that like back in the day when you would go out for like a star-studded evening and mm-hmm. see like the stars that will appear on the screen, but they're right there on the red carpet. It's exciting. That stuff is antiquated and charming. While that last announcement brings me great terror and great joy, this next one makes me feel uneasy in the worst way, but I will let you guys be the judge. It was recently announced that an American remake of the zombie thriller Train to Busan was in development. And since the initial announcement, James Wan has revealed that he'll be producing with Gary Doberman, the screenwriter for The Nun and 2017's It, writing the script. Personally, I'm not casting any doubt on the team, and I truly wish them the best of luck, but in my opinion, the original is perfect, it's only five years old. Don't mess with it. Mm. I'm going to agree with that. I, why were you make something that's great as it is? Like, are people that stupid? It just stinks like money and capitalism, and it's probably not a good idea. Totally. Yeah. I mean, you guys told me about the movie last year. Like, you have to see this. And zombies aren't 100% my favorite, but holy fuck. If you haven't seen Train to Busan, do yourself a favor. Learn to read subtitles and watch the movie. Yeah. Learn to read, period. <laughs> And finally, the first official trailer for the new Mortal Kombat reboot was released late last month, and since then, aside from the crushed skulls and broken bones featured in all their bloody glory, the trailer has broken the record for the biggest Red Band trailer release of all time. The trailer amassed 116 million views in its first week, topping the previous record holders Logan and Deadpool 2. 
Wow. Wow. Okay. Those (laughs) those were the top three most watched trailers ever. So here's the thing is those are the top three most watched red band trailers and red band trailers can't be viewed in theaters and we can't go to theaters anyway, but typical trailers are green band. And since you've asked the actual record holder for that is 2017's it. And the green band trailer had 197 million views in its first week. Wow. That's impressive. I love that. It's a horror film too, though. I mean, and and that's a worldwide accumulation. I'm assuming. Yes. That's kind of cool. Cause you, you could say too, like, with the uh, with with it being a red band, but something like Mortal Kombat will have fans across yeah. the country, like certainly in America, but definitely like in Asian markets and stuff like that too. But a horror movie to hold the number one space is kind of impressive. Oh yeah, we're worshiping at the right altar, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that just about wraps things up for the updates from the world of Hollywood horror. But for listeners out there who need a few extra recommendations to keep them up at night, I have a few movies to check out on this episode's Creatures of the Night Sleepless Viewing Calendar. The first film for viewers to mark on their calendars is titled Dementor. After fleeing from a backwoods cult, a young woman named Katie takes a job at a care center for special needs adults. But despite her best efforts, the cult may be coming for one of Katie's patients. Dementor was released by Dark Star Pictures and is available on all digital platforms starting on March 2nd. I just want to clarify that has nothing to do with Ms. McGonagall or Harry Potter. Up next, listeners will want to check out The Block Island Sound. The film wowed audiences at Fantasia International Film Festival in 2020 and centers around the isolated Block Island, where a malevolent force is having a disturbing and deadly influence on the inhabitants and the local wildlife. The film was written and directed by the McManus brothers and is coming to Netflix on March 11th. And finally, this next film has been on my personal radar since it was announced last year, a techno-horror anthology film executive produced by the director of the new Scream movie. Phobia centers around five patients all suffering from different extreme fears who are put through an experimental government testing program meant to weaponize their terror. Phobias is scheduled for a March 19th release in select theaters and VOD platforms. Sounds like trademark infringement to me. (laughs) Just to clarify, this has nothing to do with Dragula. (laughs) I guess what? Because they're not in drag, it doesn't count. Yeah, I guess not. (laughs) That actually sounds like really enticing, though. It sounds exciting. Oh, yeah. The trailer is fabulous. Really? Yeah. And it has five different directors and it's kind of, you know, cool. Yeah. Five mini stories that are all kind of tied together with this experimental government program. I love anthologies. So, I'll be there on March 19th, mama. It's just a, a video of me on the phone with uh, Violencia saying, you're going to regret this the rest of your life. Just do it. <laughs> do it. I'm t- Tomorrow you're going to regret this. You're going to do good, gal. <laughs> <laughs> you're not the one who's jumping out of a fucking plane. <laughs> I love it. I mean, honestly, she gave great TV. She really did. Well, we're going to take a break, and when we return, we'll be vivisecting one of A24's newest additions to their ever-growing library of horror films, writer-director Rose Glass's Saint Maud, in this episode's Creature Feature Movie Review. Attention, misfits, mutants, and outcasts. The Boulay Brothers want you to join the cult now by visiting BoulayBrothersDragula.com, where everything from the world of the Boulay Brothers can be found. Be sure to sign up for the newsletter for insider updates, learn more about upcoming projects, and access tons of Boulay Brothers and Boulay Brothers Dragula exclusive merchandise. Visit us now at BoulayBrothersDragula.com. Do it or die. 
These days you can't go anywhere on the internet without running into the most horrible takes. You know, your good old-fashioned homophobes or your self-proclaimed alpha males who are writing two-page articles titled How to Score the Perfect Female in 10 Days. If you are just as sick of these outdated takes as we are, you will love our podcast, Outspoken, hosted by me, Sam Collins, and my incredible partner, Shannon. We are an LGBT couple who have seen it all, been called it all, and are ready to take on the never-ending world of outrageous online opinions. Each week, we bring you the most ridiculous videos, hot takes, and hellbent news we come across on the internet. So, come laugh with us as we dismantle outdated ideologies and tear apart the most confident idiots on the internet. On our podcast, Outspoken. You can follow and listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you are listening right now. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome to this episode's Creature Feature Movie Review. We are taking a look at writer-director Rose Glass's much-anticipated Saint Maud. It's the tale of a religiously devout, reclusive young nurse who becomes obsessed with saving the soul of one of her dying patients, and it's streaming now everywhere. And I say much anticipated because we here at Creatures of the Night tend to worship at the altar of anything A24 puts out, and we generally love their films. Ian, in particular, was shivering with anticipation over St. Maud. So let's start with her. St. Maud, ma? <laughs> so just to back up what Swanthula had said, when the trailer for this film came out last year, I was gagged. This movie on paper, had everything that I am all about. It has religious aspects. It looks really dark and dreadful and slow. And overall, I was disappointed with this film. Um, Well, if you remember when you were excited (laughs) about this trailer, I was not excited. And I told you I thought it would be terrible. You did. You definitely won the official psychic person's test for that one. (laughs) I love everything that A24 puts out. And not only their horror movies, but also recently you've caught a couple of their like more dramatic pictures. Yeah, I love all of it. But there was something about this movie I just didn't think I would like from the trailer. It seemed just vapid and it it the trailer itself turned me off i don't know i you know i know we've seen tons of like slow burn movies and all three of us tend to really like them but generally it goes like this a slow burn horror film and when we say that what we mean is it uncoils very slowly sort of like a snake it's insidious and then it strikes and you you know all the pieces kind of click in and it makes sense and it kind of strikes you in like a almost like a wondrous way but this snake just took so long to uncoil no one cared by the time it was ready to strike it was just sort of very flat I kind of agree with you guys on that in in that way I do think there were some positive elements of the film I definitely never want to go into a creature feature movie review and just say eh just totally no you know I think there was beautiful set design specifically Amanda's house the interior was absolutely gorgeous but I have to agree with this snake analogy the movie continued to uncurl and unfurl for an hour and 45 minutes. And by the time we got to what I think is kind of the only scare of the movie, I thought, okay, and, and then it was done. Yeah, I thought there wasn't much to the movie. Mm -hmm. It was very obvious. There weren't layers of things to think about. It was very much this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. And none of those things were incredibly exciting. It's about mental illness and her eventually snapping and, you know, 
I suppose it's good for maybe almost a drama movie, right? Uh, I would have to agree with that. I think, and even looking on the IMDb page for it, you know, it describes the movie as first a drama, then a mystery, then a horror. And I think it's absolutely a religious drama with potentially some horror aspects to it. But billing it as an A24 horror movie, I mean, it has huge shoes to fill. You know, Ari Aster's Hereditary and Midsommar. Personally, I think those are both masterpieces. And this just fell flat, unfortunately. I will agree with that. Yeah, it's funny because I did not read those reviews. And in my notes, I put this is really a movie most about religious zealotry and mental illness, not fear. Maybe in third place, it's kind of a horror movie. Well, we love A24, but we did not love St. Maud. And instead of talking more about it, we're going to move on to a movie that I think you all at least enjoyed. Barb and Star go to Vesta Del Mar. Oh, Barb! Oh, Star! Oh, boy! We just, <laughs> I don't know why we decided to watch this or talk about it on the podcast because it's completely off brand and has nothing to do with it. But I feel like it's revenge for having to watch Saint Maud. Yes, I am absolutely into that, and I gotta say. I loved Barb and Star oh, going to Vista yeah. Del Mar. Holy. Did you? Oh my God. It was so fun. And I feel like it's very rare that I sit down and just watch, first of all, just watch a comedy. And then secondly, to watch a comedy like this. Because I do love, like I love a Bridesmaids. I love The Hangover. And this movie is just lunacy from moment <laughs> one to moment done. I was like, wow. I would probably never watch a movie like this. But the trailer, again, I was like, do I really want to see this? Do I want to go to Vista Del Mar? So I love the concept. I love the characters and I love the actresses, but I did not love the movie. Sure. Yeah, because I think that Bridesmaids is so funny and I thought that this just was not funny like that. This kind of harkened back to one of those, like, you know, Saturday Night Live would put out these movies with these characters that they would do skits with, sure. but the movies never... Quite good, lived up to you know? it, yeah. And, and it kind of felt like that a little bit to me. I don't know. I like this breed of like stupid film. You know, part of it is that Kristen Wiig plays both one of the heroes and the villains, which oh, yeah. I, it took me a minute. And I'm like, are they coming for our look? Because mm, that, I thought that, that for a minute villain, too. I was like, no. I'm like this harsh bob, that. that white hair. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay. We I think we wore that before. Shared DNA with this villain. But, you know, at first I was like, don't try to do better what Tilda Swinton is known to be like the master of, oh, which yeah. is playing like multiple roles in a movie. But I think Kristen Wiig really brought it and it was fun. And I like this breed of stupid movie. And I really just found myself smiling for like two hours watching Barb and Star. It didn't matter what ridiculous thing was next. It was fun. Yeah, I think that the SNL analogy is pretty true. Like I was thinking about the movie. I was like, you know what? For me, the strength of this movie is also its fatal flaw is that it feels like an overly long SNL sketch. I mean, I will say I would watch The Talking Club all day long. (laughs) (laughs) But if you did, you would want them to just sit there and talk. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't want them to go on some adventure against a space villain. It's like that's what makes it suck I think I don't know for me the one really fatal flaw of the movie is any time that someone who is not Barb or Star is on screen because they try to have Jamie Dornan who plays this guy you know he has like a plot I guess and it's just so strange like I'm like how do you make this character make less sense than the villain of the movie who is totally like a wackadoo villain from some other universe like how does she make more sense than 
this love interest character. Yeah. You know, when it first started and I was like, are we really about to rent this movie for $19.99? And I'm like, yes, yes, we are. So we hit play and I'm like, within the first five minutes, I thought we bought the wrong movie because I'm like, wait, what is this like science tech? Who's this little kid? They're disappearing into a tree like 007 in the future. And I'm like, oh, it's like a secret villain. Like this is like so, it was just weird from moment one and it was really fun till moment done. I think the, the magic of these characters is when they're in their mundane settings because yes. that's when they seem outrageous. But when you place them in outrageous situations, it's almost like they seem less outrageous. I can see that. And I think to that point, my favorite parts of the movie are when Barb and Star are just riffing on each other. Like them talking about, oh, Trish. I was like, I could listen to them talk about (laughs) Trish all day. You know, and them just on the couch. Like I think those are the moments where the movie really shines. And it's cute and it is really stupid. (laughs) Really dumb. It's great. Like if you live a stressful life or you've had a hard week and you just, you know, you need to unwind, like have a glass of wine, sit down and watch Barb and Star. You definitely will not regret it. And I do want to say one thing though, because they worked at like Ashley Furniture or something. (laughs) And I so just thought of me and Drac. Like if we had stupid jobs like sorry but working at a furniture store i'd be like um excuse you no you cannot this is our couch oh, for this is sure. the couch that we sit on we would set up a living room and be totally. like you can't come over here i'm sorry oh you want to come over to our house tonight honey no i don't think so <laughs> like fake cooking food and pots go isn't. shop over there <laughs> oh my god i will say this uh also i don't want to like Go out on a bad note for A24. I do want to mention Monari that they came out with. That is a great movie that I think everyone should also watch. It's not a horror movie. I think it just won Best Picture. Best Foreign Language at the Golden Globes, yes. Which was weird. Yeah, there's a controversy because it was an American director and writer, but because it was in Korean, they put it in this category. And they they, you know, people were saying that it kind of stank a little bit of racism. Mm. That because it wasn't English speaking, even though the creator is an American, Mm. that it it kind of got placed in the wrong category. It's an American story, too. It's the story of becoming Americans. Mm -hmm. It, It really is. I mean, unfortunately, I think that there's a lot of racism just around the award shows in general. Like even all of the controversy that got kicked up when Parasite won Best Picture last year at the Oscars. You know, it's we have these categories meant to separate foreign language films from films that are with American directors. But it's like at the end of the day, isn't this just supposed to be about film in general? Like, why are we separating them? I don't think people at home realize that these award ceremonies are just full of money and greed and mm-hmm. influence. It really is. It's it's sad Nepotism. when you realize, yeah, when you realize sort of how people win these awards and that they have to go to great lengths to manipulate and kiss people's ass to get these awards. It's mm-hmm. crazy. I always thought growing up, you'd be like, that's just such a good movie that they decided to recognize yeah. it. That does not happen. You, you have to you think that there's like You think there's like, oh, there's a judges panels of like supreme movie judges. <laughs> yeah, and this is like just the best one, but that's not how it is. No. It's like manipulating and coercing and like it's nepotism. It's like it's all campaigning. It's politics. It's exactly If you what ever it is. see some judges on a reality show and you're like, why would that person ever be on that show? I'll give you one guess and we'll leave it at that. You know, I actually want to say some final words too about St. Maude because to me, it wasn't all just a throwaway. I actually liked watching it because of the religious aspects. If the last 15 minutes could have been spread across the entire movie, I really did get scared there in the end and it kind of thrilled me. And some of that religious imagery, you know, kind of touched me in just, I think the way that the film creators intended them to, it was Mm -hmm. just a little bit too little too late. 
I'm going to have to agree with you there. I actually, I jumped and I screamed at the scare. And yeah. I wish that, you know, I, I think the movie is a little bit too long. And I wish that it all took place inside Amanda's apartment because I felt like those pieces were good. And then the end scare, I mean, bitch, really actually scary. So, you know, I've told you this before, like I don't make a sound when I'm scared, but like chills rip all over me. And I was just like, like I was like shuddering because that was scary. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we like to announce our creature feature movie picks in advance so our listeners can watch and know what we are talking about. But this is not going to be one of those times. So you'll just have to wait till the next episode to discover which film we will be reviewing next. And we are very excited to be moving on to our book review segment here on Creatures of the Night. As our literary choice, we've picked author Brian Lumley's vampire classic, Necroscope. It's a long story, so to make our discussion manageable, we've decided to break up the tale into three chapter segments. And this episode, we are moving on to chapters four, five, and six. Now, these chapters were all about Dragasani's time back in his home country of Romania at the foot of the Carpathian Mountains. These chapters, to me, are a little bit of a change of pace. You know, the first three chapters of the book, we kind of get this introduction to this world, and then chapter two is super bombastic, and then chapter three, we kind of, you know, there's Harry Keogh, and there's all the math that really scared me last chapter. <laughs> <laughs> and these three chapters, sticking to the Romanian setting, there's a lot of backstory here. And I don't think that the backstory uh, harms the book. Like, I think these three chapters are actually really exciting because we get our first glimpse into the Wamfari, which is this, I mean, as we're kind of learning, this race of vampires that are amazing. They're kind of unlike any sort of vampires that you may have seen or heard in literature or in movies. And one of my favorite things is a passage in chapter six where the legends of vampires are kind of broken down and all of the myths are dispelled. I just Very, thought it was so fabulous. So satisfying. I, you know, Drac and I talked about that a little bit last night too. And for me, it was really satisfying for Drac. She was like, eh, yeah, maybe, maybe I could have been left without that. But really? I, I liked that they ran down all the things that you think you know. And what would apply to this world? Because oftentimes people that create different mythologies about vampires will stick to some of them, but some of them they mm -hmm. won't to. Some will have reflections or they can't move over running water or, or whatnot. And uh, it was very satisfying to find out what Brian Lumley's rules actually were. Yeah, Drac, what did you find dissatisfying about it? Well, I didn't like the any kind of connection to Dracula. You know, okay. that seems so easy. And I feel like this race of vampires is so unique that you wouldn't even need to mention Dracula, even if, even the fact that it's in Romania and all these things, you could just avoid that completely, which I think it would make it a little more original, especially knowing what I know about what these creatures actually are and their complete lack of connection to the sort of vampire that Dracula has been presented as. Um, I almost think it does a little bit of a disservice, but maybe it sets up your expectations to think it is that sort of vampire and then you learn that it's not. Sure, but you know, this kind of, brings up like, well, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Are they talking about Dracula because of the fact that this vampire existed in that region and the Dracula myth could have grown out of the fact that these vampires exist, not the other way That's around? That's what I yeah. think, yeah, the implication is. But it's just the mention of it. I would like to see it free of that. I would love to see a vampire story that doesn't tie back to Dracula in any way, shape, or form. But I also think... Just going over each thing almost takes the, the surprise. surprise out of it, you know? Sure. Yeah, because we don't know what these vampires are or what they can do. And again, I know that it develops into something else, so we'll see, you know? I guess I'll have to read it 
read the rest of the book with that in mind, you know? Yeah. Because like writers make choices and they make them all, they make a lot of choices and they make them all for very specific reasons. So there could be reasons why we come back to learn, you know, later on. And I don't remember the book. Like, you know how I am. Like, you know, information comes in, I savor it and then it's gone forever until I like, reread <laughs> it again 10 years later. <laughs> I thought it was interesting how Dragasani first got his necromantic powers. I thought that was kind of interesting. I even marked this passage in the book. There's a flashback and it's Boris was in a high place. He felt a swaying and heard the soughing of high branches. Overhead, the vault of the sky opened outward forever. And I thought it was such a beautiful way to kind of literally describe, you know, when Dragasani crushes this bird, he is literally seeing the bird in flight or becoming the bird in flight. But metaphorically, it's his own reality and the world, our reality, just kind of completely opening up. And as a reader, I was like, oh my God, what a beautiful way to describe this is where we are now, kind of outside of the bounds of like the human world. And that also kind of plays a double duty too, because we learn in that passage that Dragasani is using like his necromantic powers for the first time, not because the vampire gifted him with them. It was specifically explained. Necromancy is a purely human art, mm -hmm. just a lost one and a rare one. But the vampire in the ground could sense it in Dragasani and sort of guided him to unlock this latent power that he had. What are you guys thinking about this villain character that's been presented? Like, what do you guys think of the way he's interacting with Dragasani and just how he's existing? What, what are you all's thoughts on that? What Drag is referring to, I'm assuming, is the old one yes. or this character, right? It's interesting that you kind of instantly kind of pin this character as the villain because obviously there, I think, are dark kind of subtext surrounding the way that he interacts with Dragasani. But I love the way that he's presented almost as a father, a mentor, but with a darkness around him. I think it creates a very layered character. And when I was first introduced, I was like, holy shit, who is this? What is this? And I feel like that sense of questioning and of mystery is one of the greatest things about these three chapters. It's very personal. That's And I'm glad, Ian, you started the way that you did because I found chapters like one, two, and three like exhilarating. This one was slower and more mm -hmm. personal, but I thought like just as kind of like fascinating. I love backstory. I love myth. I love learning the boundaries of what the mythology is. Yeah, like seeing this creature in the ground, like the way that he spoke and something that really kind of thrilled me and this vampiric force did it many times was almost like communicate through like the wind. Mm -hmm. So when his presence was there, the wind would ripple through the trees. And even when in chapter six, when Dragasani is about to have his first sexual experience, he invites the vampiric force to sort of guide him. The wind came right into his heart and then mm -hmm. all the fear just evaporated. And to me, that's like such a thrill because we've seen vampires do things like if we think about Bram Stoker's and the way that it was portrayed visually on screen, he moves through like smoke and can disperse and and even like making references to like the ground like this blood isn't for me it's for the earth because mm -hmm. we hear vampire myths about like them having to sleep in the ground of the earth where they're from so i think all of these things kind of intertwine into a very interesting tapestry of vampiric mythology work mama yes. <laughs> Well, you know, kind of speaking about the sexual experience, I think that that's kind of one of the big things that really struck me in kind of a visceral way about, I believe it starts in chapter five. We learn about, I mean, really the history of why Dragasani is a virgin. And it's through this flashback and a description of the aunt that he stayed with and the inappropriate sexual conduct and really, I mean, sexual assault that happens on Dragasani. And while that passage was honestly difficult to read. I felt like it did such an amazing job of portraying sex in this like visceral, dark, bestial kind of way that we do the exact same thing with violence in chapter two. And I finished reading, I was like, oh my God, like I feel just as like 
soaked in the gore of this book after reading that passage concerning sex that I do about violence. Wow, and, that's really interesting. I didn't, I didn't think that or feel that, but that's that's really cool. Yeah, there's even one passage where he's looking at the the guy that his aunt and his cousins are having sex with, and he describes him as a satyr. And I thought, oh my God, is this literal? Is it a metaphorical satyr? And it's just kind of, again, Telemathy like, and where could I meet him? Oh, girl, they were describing him. They were like, he was almost misshapen. He was hairy. And I was like, oh, God, he's so hot. <laughs> but no, it's great kind of building this world of magic and mythos in, in our reality. You know, you have these monsters who, again, sometimes the greatest monsters are human. Mm. And I felt like that passage was just, I mean, again, like kind of dripped in like the fluids of the sex, just like we were dripping the fluids of the gore of chapter two. Before we uh, kind of like fully wrap this up, one of my favorite things, this is a quote from page 141 that I was like, truly this quote speaks to me. The piglet had regained consciousness, but did not yet have the strength to stand up. And I was like, bitch, that is me on tour. Mama, I, mm-hmm. yes, piglet. Same. <laughs> Just lay down. It's all good, girl. Well, there was oh. also the description of the piglet's body that was like, a dried crepe-like husk. <laughs> All of yeah. us after filming a season. I was like, can, relatable. <laughs> relatable content. Relatable. I want to say this. I've never been part of a reading club of like any kind. And I, I haven't had a forum to like just discuss something that I've read since maybe high school when I was barely paying attention then. And I actually really love this. Like I'm super enjoying like going through this. I'm really happy that we introduced this literary segment into the show. And to quote something that Ian said last episode and just reminds everybody where I'm at, Reading is really fucking fun. (laughs) (laughs) And I stand by that quote. (laughs) Yes, she does. Well, we really hope listeners are enjoying Necroscope as much as we are. And we'd like to encourage you all to continue with us and be prepared to discuss Interval 1 and Chapters 7, 8, and 9 next episode. And if you don't, know that I hate you a little bit. Well, because you're ignorant and you're proving to be no fun at all. (laughs) Oh, my God. All right, we're going to take a little break. And when we return, we'll be reaching into our bag of mail to answer some of our Creatures of the Night listener questions. Don't move. Arda Wiggs has been serving looks in the drag and costume community since 2009. Their reputation in the wig world is well known for providing luscious, thick, snatchingly good styles that turn heads and ensure you are serving the most devilish of looks. With over 100 colors and 80 styles to choose from, they're sure to have something to make you scream. Use the code ARDABOULE10 for 10% off at arda-wigs.com and treat yourself to something truly hair-raising. All right, my little mutants, we're going to take some time now to answer your listener questions. We're going to get to as many as we can, but if we don't get to them all in this episode, we will go back to them on the next episode. So Marilyn writes, how do you come up with the new ideas for your work and continue evolving, especially if you ever face a creative block? Hmm. I'd like to preface all of these answers by saying I've not looked at any of these questions, so all of these are on the fly. And I'll say... I think it's 
very wise to have a creative partner if you can, you know, and I look to Drac and the two of us really kind of work on everything together. We're both artists in our own right separately. But when we come in, if I'm ever feeling a little bit low on ideas or vice versa, I think you can have someone there to give you a little bit of their energy. And sometimes if Drac just says a few things to me, it can spark like a whole new font of ideas that I didn't know were there. I think that's a good idea. Also, keeping a journal is smart. So if you kind of keep a journal with you at all times, no matter where you are in the world, if anything sparks your imagination, you can jot it down. So for me, even in mundane times, if we're just driving somewhere and I see something on the street that's like, oh, that would be a cool scene in a horror movie or what an interesting location or what if that person did this, you know, and I'll jot those ideas down. So when I go back to work on creative projects, larger projects, I have like a ton of things to pull from. And it reminds me, oh, yeah, I pictured that visually in my mind. And I just wrote these words down to remind me of what I imagined then. That's a good point. And when we say journal, you can actually have like a physical journal or sometimes a cell phone we've made reference to that tons of times. Like if you're just out and you don't have something like that, you make some notes in your cell phone. You'd be surprised at how many times you go back to those notes and it can be very inspirational for projects in the future. And you can even break them down into extremely organizational sections like <laughs> books, movies, comic books, and then even subcategories. It's a lot of fun. Trust me. Lots of files, lots of Google Docs. Yes. Carly C. asks, my question is, what is your thought process on how to come up with extermination challenges for the show? Where do you draw the line with how far is too far? Um, that's something we've talked about on the podcast a few times before. Um, it's difficult because you want it to be entertaining and you want it to challenge the competitors. You don't want it to be sadistic just for the shock of being sadistic. You wanted to have a purpose behind it. So it's difficult, I would say. Yeah, sometimes the challenges will be the thing that's inspirational. Sometimes the extermination happens first and the challenge can be built around that. I mean, and I really think you can go either way. Um, we like to make sense though. That's why we have judges that actually relate directly to the challenge and the extermination also relates directly to the challenge. So I think if you have the goal of like making sense, a lot of these things will fall into place a little easier. Anna asks, I was wondering if besides the typical and more mainstream monsters and creatures, you are interested in mythological creatures or tales. And in that case, from which culture and specific? Wow. I draw inspiration from all sorts of monsters. And it's interesting what a monster is in different cultures, because you could take something that's terrifying to us and in a different culture, they don't find it terrifying at all. Yeah. So it's almost like you have to create monsters and fear in whatever section of the world you're working in. The same kind of fear doesn't apply everywhere. Sure. I think Greek mythology has tons of inspiration. There's a lot of like Chinese mythology too that's extremely interesting. Absolutely. A good friend of ours who's an artist in her own right, you know, she's um, Taiwanese, but she kind of shares with us a lot of like the mythology of like her family and what their beliefs are. And I've always been kind of fascinated with everything she says about ghosts in the spirit world. Mm -hmm. And she makes reference to things like, well, if there are cold patches or you feel cold in a room or something like that, that it could convey sickness, maybe even in the source of that sickness could be like a spiritual source, like a ghost, which would will we'll drop the temperature and sort of affect you in that way, which is very foreign to what I grew up with. And, you know, we've talked many times, like part of my family is from Greece and they have their own set of like superstitions and mythology, very different from that, which is just as fascinating though. Mm -hmm. 
I love creatures too. Like I'm sort of obsessed lately with the chimera. And this is like a, you know, a beast from Greek mythology that it consists of like usually three separate beasts as a composite. I just kind of love that idea because sometimes I feel like I get inspired by ideas that are from two or three very different places. And I think Dragula is a great example of that and kind of merge them into one unique beast. Like Dragula sort of is a chimera in that way. Rian writes, ever since watching your New Year's Evil show, which was well worth staying up till 6 a.m. to see, by the way, I have been compulsively listening to Ornaments of Gold and Into a Swan. Having never come across Susie and the Banshees, oh my God, I can't believe you just said that, before I am now obsessed. My question is, have you got any other recommendations of music we ghouls should know? Well, I'm sure we could hit you with tons of music, but I'll say, here's two I think you should check out. Check out Concrete Blonde. Mm-hmm. They're fantastic. Not like Susie, but just as enjoyable. And I also think you should check out Shakespeare's sister. They have mm. some interesting sounds too. And if you've seen our digital show, we performed to a Shakespeare sister song. I'll just put that out there and let you discover which one it is. And I'm also going to say, listen to the Smiths because there's a lot of good stuff from the Smiths and Morrissey, even though it's a male lead singer, like it's just as, just as good for drag. I think who cares about the gender anyway. Also dead can dance is another one that we've performed to that. I think, uh, I would think everyone would know about them, but maybe not. So check them out if you don't know about them. Uh, Marie has a question for each of us. At the end of season one of the podcast, Swan mentioned the fact that she read all the Twilight books, and I'm dying to know, are you team Edward or team Jacob or a different team member from the series? Jack and Ian, what are your thoughts? Let me just start by saying I have no thoughts on that, nor will I be reporting on them. I'm going to say, sorry to disappoint, but I'm neither team Edward nor Jacob. I would probably like to destroy both of them. I was the team, the cabal of old vampires that they came across when, you know, that war happened and they all kind of came out of the woodworks and everybody had their own power. I thought it was cool to just see all the different strains of vampires and how they represented their powers. But yeah, I didn't have to choose from the main characters. I liked that there was a world that vampires and werewolves existed in simultaneously. Also in that episode, Drac mentioned being a history buff, and I was wondering if there are any historical time periods, events, or people, etc., that you're really interested in. I was really interested in American history for a long time because I remember when 9-11 happened, and it really made me sort of wake up and think about America's place in the world and why, because it's like the way that it's presented to us from our society and government, it's like, these people hate us. They're trying to kill us. And anyone knows, like, that just doesn't make logical sense. And I really wanted to know, where does this hatred come from? And where does this this war over oil come from? And I started reading tons about American history and the ways that our government have influenced other governments and the hypocrisy of it. And it was startling to, to read about. And even just sort of racism in our country and how... And the Industrial Revolution impacted the country and how it grew and everything, which is really interesting. So I think a good book to read if you're interested in American history, but like real American history is A People's History of the United States. That's a good book to check out. I actually have a question for Ian, too. Have you ever considered doing drag? And if so, what held you back? Hi. No, I have not considered doing drag. Um, I think drag is an incredible art form. All art is valid. It just doesn't really appeal to me in a personal sense. Like I have always kind of looked at myself as 
someone who helps creatives. Like I have my own kind of creative interests, but doing drag, I just kind of look at it as like, that's an incredible art form that not really for me. So nothing helped me back. I mean, maybe my eyebrows, but eh. uh, thank you for going there. Cause that's what I was going to say. But I do want to say we've teased Ian about putting him in drag on occasion. Like Drac and I were going to like bring him into our makeup room and get him in drag. And he, he got very excited about the prospect. So it hasn't happened yet, but I'm not going to say it never will. Ooh. Lemon asked, hi. So recently a family member shared a disagreement they have with their partner. And I was wondering if this has ever happened between the two of you where one of you wants children, but the other doesn't. Oh, that's easy. We both hate children. Kidding. <laughs> I don't hate children, but I do hate the pressure of society that, tells every couple that they should reproduce. There are plenty of people. There are too many people on this earth. You don't have to do it. Find a hobby. Find something else to dedicate your life to. How many people did you know that you went to school with that just felt like they had to get married, they had to have a kid? Not only that, they don't deal with their own problems before they become a parent. So I'm like, way to go. Thank you for just passing your drama mm -hmm. on to someone else to pass on to the rest of society. No, look, I think that that's really conscionable and wise. And I've heard it said, though, like, if you wait for the perfect time, then it'll never happen. So it I, should never happen I, for some people, though. That's the thing. Yeah, I know. I, I think in some ways it's easier to, like, have a child than it is to, like, drive a car or adopt a dog. Like you need licenses for these kind of things. And I think in many ways there should be like kind of prerequisites to know that if you're going to bring a living person into the world that you could take care of them and do it in a healthy environment where they're not going to grow up and just have as many issues that you do. Yeah. I don't think you have to be perfect to have a child. That's not what I'm saying, but at least I knew people that just weren't that far along in their development and I almost feel like they loved the fact that they had a kid because it was a distraction for them not to look at their own problems. Absolutely. And I'm like, you're just going to pass those problems to somebody else. And not to mention, the child develops, you are on pause for 20 years. And as yeah. soon as that child leaves the house, you pick up where? Exactly where you yeah. left off. Like those developmental issues do not go away. They just wait for you forever. And you're a 50-year-old 18 year old. Yeah. It's weird, Sherry. So I'd say we don't fight about having children. And I think we have similar interests now. And if one of us wanted to have a child at some point in our lives, I think it would just be something that we discuss. And if it would make someone happy enough to do that, then we would figure out how to make that work. There are too many pit bulls in the world that need my attention. Oh, I'm sorry, I will not be having a they child. They need all of our love. Pilar writes, you mentioned Snyder Cut last episode, and immediately I thought about DC Comics and remembered the comic you mentioned a long time ago. Have you anything related to share about it? Um, I think that we can share that it will be out, at least the first part of it, in October of this year. So we can share that. Michael writes, I was wondering, do you guys play any horror video games? I think horror video games are a part of the new renaissance of horror in media we've had over the past few years. I would love to see the Boulay brothers play through Resident Evil or Dead by Daylight or some other great horror game. The truth is we don't have time to play horror games <laughs> Damn. between reading all these fucking books and watching all these fucking movies and then running all the businesses and things that we do. Our I just life is a horror video it is. game. <laughs> no, I would love to. And I've seen people playing it. I know Eva and Bitch stream it and I'm kind of jealous. It looks fun. Yeah. But you, you did find time over a pandemic to play. Which was it? Resident Evil 2? Resident Evil 2. Yeah. yeah Which I really pulled, enjoyed. I yeah. liked it. I just, I think this one might be more in depth and 
we weren't as busy then, you know, it was yeah. like when the pandemic was just starting. And if that hadn't happened, I probably would have never had time to play it. Yeah. But I, I do want to note that Drac was texting me from the other room like, damn, this is actually really scary, <laughs> which gave me a thrill because you're not easy to scare. Um, I do think it could be a fun idea to bring someone in to review video games, even if it's quarterly, like horror video games. It could be kind of cool because we cover so many other things, comics, books, you know. But who could we bring into our podcast to cover like horror video games? I mean, what drag expert could we possibly tap to join us on the show? Maybe listeners have good ideas. Michael T. asks, I am a non-binary 20-something in the Pacific Northwest. Do you ever find yourself in predominantly cishet spaces where others in the room aren't being openly hostile to you, yet you still feel alienated and isolated? Do you believe this feeling arises from personal or projected anxieties, or do you think that this fear is justified even if you haven't faced open discrimination for your queerness? I mean, the root of the question is, have we ever felt isolated or alienated in a sit-hat space? And I'll say easily 100% yes, like over and over again, especially especially growing up. You know, I, Those are the killing fields that I think queer people have to survive to get to adult life and try to be happy, like existing in those spaces. And even, you know, even people that aren't trying to overtly be rude, they say like insensitive things because they don't understand that what they're saying could hurt someone like you because oftentimes you're hiding your nature. And this is the kind of stuff that I think queer people grow up with and it's very common it is that's what i was gonna say i think is that you know welcome to life because unfortunately this is the society that we live in if you're queer or you're a weirdo or even worse if you're a queer weirdo this is how it is when you grow up in quote normal hetero society so i think you should just um write it all down because it'll make for a good book later and get the hell out of there as soon as you can (laughs) Yeah. yeah um You know, I think it's both a personal anxiety and a projected anxiety. You know, it's something that we kind of carry wounds from being young and kind of growing through that. And like sometimes when you're an adult, you're almost like prepared for that type of pain and judgment again. But you do have to learn how to deal with it internally and not put that on other people and give them a chance. Because sometimes people are more willing to learn and adjust and be educated and be considerate. Uh, And if you don't give them the chance, you'll never know. Artiz writes, Drac. When judging the Dragula competitors, you think you need to filter your opinions so that they are not so discouraging, aggressive, or bitchy. Maybe? Are they asking, do I think I need to or or telling me that I need to? I think they're asking you, do you think you need to curb your judgments because you're aggressive and bitchy? No, I don't actually because everyone on set normally encourages me to be more bitchy and aggressive. (laughs) I know I do. I think people maybe miss it. I don't know. Either they misinterpret it or maybe I'm sending out the wrong message when we're in judgment because I try to be quick and concise, honestly, for editing because it's annoying when someone sits there and talks forever. So I try to just say what I have to say quick and direct. I also don't like to miscommunicate. So if a competitor is standing up there, I don't want to be like, well, you could have done this a little. I'm, I don't want to do that. I want to just tell them the truth of what I think. That's that's why I'm a judge, right? Mm-hmm. They want my opinion, right? So I think I'm they sharing do. It. So yeah, I'll just say uh, your makeup sucks. And there. <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Well, that's all the questions we have time for this episode. And thank you to everyone who wrote in. If you have questions for us about the podcast, our TV show, or any of our other projects, remember to write in to us at creatures at bulebrothersdragula.com. We love to learn where in the world our listeners are writing from. So from now on, we're asking everyone who writes in with questions to also let us know where they live.
And now it's time to change the mood a little and bring the lights down as we prepare for this episode's Haunting of History. For this section of the show, we like to dig up a real-life documented supernatural happening and give listeners an abridged history of the terrifying event. We encourage you to turn down the lights, find a dark, quiet place to relax in, and prepare for a journey into the unknown. In 1954, the small beachside town of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina was becoming a southern family vacation hotspot. Various amusement parks, water slides, and thrill attractions were starting to pop up everywhere. One such attraction came to life in a deep wooded area miles out of town off a then desolate Highway 17. This new attraction began innocently enough as an amusement park built on a Cowboys and Indians theme complete with live-action gunfights, stagecoach rides, and shooting games, it was set to be a hit. That is, until tragedy struck. Almost instantly upon opening, the park grounds would see its first death as a stagecoach ride tipped over, instantly killing one person and injuring several others. The fatal opening scared off vacationers, and the park was sold and rebranded. After becoming a more traditional attraction complete with roller coasters and ferris wheels, the park again faced misfortune when a ride worker broke into the manager's office. The worker shot and killed the manager point blank and made off with the park's daily take. Again the attraction closed and changed hands. A foreign-owned company bought the park and spent millions of dollars transforming it into a British-themed amusement park now called Magic Harbor. One of the biggest Ferris wheels in the world was added, as well as a log ride, teacups, a steel roller coaster called the Black Witch, a haunted house, and many new state-of-the-art rides. It was truly a beautiful place, as it was located above a lake with its own campground. The grounds were thickly wooded and had several man-made lakes centered around a games area. A sky ride carried park patrons to and from an island located on the other side of the lake. Once again, tragedy struck shortly after the park's grand opening. A young woman stood up while riding the Black Witch roller coaster and was killed instantly as her head was caught by a track above. It is reported that she was almost 100% decapitated when the cart returned to the roller coaster's base. The park never recovered. Slowly over time, less and less vacationers visited Magic Harbor, and with no money to keep the grounds up, the park slowly deteriorated. While it remained open to visitors, what was once a brightly painted and welcoming amusement park quickly turned into an eerie, decrepit, unkept attraction from a horror movie. There were no lines for the rides, no other patrons in the park, and the chip paint and distorted music playing from the park's weather-damaged speakers only added to the strange vibe. Magic Harbor became known locally as Haunted Harbor, and the park continued to fall into disarray until it eventually closed for good. For many years, the park sat abandoned and slowly continued to fall apart. Eventually, the city deemed the harbor a fire hazard, and the entire attraction was bulldozed to the ground. The famous lighthouse steeple that graced Haunted Harbor's parking lot was sold and moved to another Myrtle Beach attraction called Family Kingdom, where it still is today. 
Nothing was ever researched or discovered regarding the property's history before it became an amusement park, or what may have invited such dark energy to the area. Whatever it was may still be lying there in wait. With the lot remaining vacant, one can only imagine that the park could one day return to the land of the living along with whatever it was that may have caused so much death and misfortune to the businesses that opened there. While the park is now long gone, a small section of the campground still remains today, and you can even go and camp there yourself. If you dare. Thank you all for joining us for another hair-raising episode of the Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night. Be sure to keep up with us at BouletBrothersDragula.com and remember to send your listener questions and where you're all writing from to Creatures at BouletBrothersDragula.com. Until next time, uglies. The Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night is a Dread Central production. Hosted by the Boulay Brothers with their co-host and producer, Ian DeVogler. Engineered and mixed by Carlos Bueno with music by Neuron Spectre.